Well, hello everybody and welcome to episode 27 of Yes Over Yes. I am Anthony Edmondson, voiceover Tony, as ever with my good friend... Paul Anthony Jones. Who is Mr. Haggard Hawks? Indeed. Now, we're, I think we're on maybe week three of the lockdown, Paul? Something like that. It feels like it's been like nine years. It does. I think all the, all the days have blurred into one. I'm kind of growing like a, a wild man style haircut. Oh, really? I'd say I'm thinking that I, sh- I might turn my beard trimmers against my head and like just go for a buzz cut. Oh, do it. Re- that would be great. Do you reckon? Do a complete, complete shaved head. I don't know if I could carry it off or not, though. No, just go for it. We'll put it. We'll put it on the Twitter account, Paul. We'll say it's, it's yes or BS. Season five is going to be like a really gritty version. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't like Breaking Bad. Yeah. Uh, all, all, like all normal life has gone out the window the minute I get a buzz cut. To be fair, I, I, I'm already like I had carrot cake for breakfast. Like the, <laughs> the rules have gone. But that was before the lockdown, Paul. True. I, said, I don't know what's, I don't know what's different there. Like. <laughs> So how are you? How are you doing on the facts for that final episode of season four? I, w- I was really confident with these stories until I read them through again today, and now I don't know. I've because you text me saying that you've got some really good ones, so I, I I hope these hold up against yours. Having just read them in the last two minutes, I'm also not so confident with them now. That's <laughs> really <laughs> setting the bar high for our listeners. Then, <laughs> so stay tuned, everyone. But I'll have to say, I, I've finally broken. Because I did promise that I wasn't going to do any Roman facts at all. Oh, <laughs> but here, <laughs> like it's just one set of six episodes. Just don't do a Roman fact. How hard is that? It's too late now. There's no time to change this. Uh, that means all three of them are Roman facts. No, no. I've got actually my second fact about etymology as well. Oh, is it about the etymology of the word Roman? <laughs> Spoiler alert, it comes from Rome. <laughs> but I've turned it into a 20-minute speech. Probably, yeah. <laughs> oh, you've broken I've... your own self-imposed rule. I couldn't help it. It was like it was too much not to do one. Uh, is it that good a story? Oh, it's a good one. All right, okay. Let's launch into it, Paul. All right, here we go. It's, it's right, season finale. Yes. You've upped the ante and brought the Romans back into it. Yes, <sighs> because we're going to talk about the tales of Herodotus again. Oh, now, that's now. the sound of everyone clicking this shut. Excuse me. Last time we did Herodotus, it was quite exciting. For, if you remember, for, for you. <laughs> if you remember, it was the story about... The Persian invasion of Egypt and the ophthalmologist. Oh, uh, yes. All right, yes, yes that, that was quite a good story, yes. You see? Okay. So, a little bit of background on Herodotus first. Now, Herodotus gets some stick because he gets accused of being more of a an outlandish storyteller than a historian. Mm. But the truth is, he's the only source we can rely on for a lot of the history around this period. But he was also a bit of a showman because he would recite his tales to crowds. So take all of his stories with a pinch of salt. Okay. He did actually travel around the Mediterranean and interview people. He was like the very first historian, really. Mm. But what did Herodotus write about the Romans, I hear you ask? (laughs) hearing absolutely nobody ask that question (laughs) i'm really starting to lose confidence in this fact (laughs) the only person asking that question is the voice in your head i'm sure there's at least one listener who likes roman facts (laughs) right come on this thing 
If you know anything about Roman history, you'll know Herodotus lived around the time of the Roman Republic. So this was before the empire. Mm. And he was writing at a time when Rome was still like a little baby of a state. It was just kind of starting to flex its muscle outside of the Rome area. Right. So as you might know, Rome kind of goes on a bit of a rampage in the north to defeat all of the tribes that might have once oppressed them and to expand their own territory. Mm. So they're on a bit of a, a conquering conquering spree at the minute. Right. And this is where Herodotus turns his sights because he sees an interesting story here. Okay. Up until now, everything's been true. From this point on, I'm going to recite Herodotus's story. Okay. So imagine if you will, the year is 460 BC. Rome has subdued the northern tribes and it turns its greedy eyes to the south mm. where there are many Greeks settled there. So there's a lot of Greek city-states in the southern Italian peninsula at this point. Mm-hmm. And specifically Neapolis. Okay. Which was originally a Greek city. Okay. Um, modern day Naples, of course. Uh, but first, do you want to hear how Herodotus described the Romans? <laughs> All right, come on then. (laughs) He said, The Roman is thick-headed but tenacious. He claims rights to all lands he sees, but is never satisfied with his conquest. Eternally paranoid, he lives with the casus belli of, for the protection of Rome. The casus belli means a cause for war, a reason for war. And there were a few different reasons you could declare war on someone. Uh, One was fear actually. Right. One was one was for honour, and the third one was for national interest. So All right. There's a few di- few different reasons you could declare war on someone. You could de- declare if... war based on fear. Yes, if you were afraid of a neighbour who was threatening you, you could kind of preemptively declare war on them. Ah, right, okay. Right, so it's not like me going, I'm scared of spiders, so I'm going to declare war on spiders. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose you could do that if you wanted, if you had, had the means to raise a militia or an army. Against all the spiders. <laughs> Every spider on earth. So we get back to the story. Did Neapolis surrender? No, of course they didn't. They were proud Greeks. Who are these upstart Roman punks from the north? They've only been on the block for five minutes. Were they ancient Greeks? Well, they didn't call themselves ancients, probably. They just called themselves the Greeks. Is this Herodotus writing this? <laughs> no, this is my telling of it. Right, okay, so this is your paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing Herodotus. Right, I was going to say, saying... I don't think Latin had a version of the word punks. <laughs> <laughs> He's basically bigging up the Greek city-states who were in southern Italy at the time. Right. And that they should have been able to stop the Romans because they were just better than them. Right, okay. Um, The ruler of Neapolis at the time, Eschinanes, he had a cunning plan. He was going to get the boys together. So he got on the the phone to Syracuse, Taras, Sybaris, a lot of the city-states in the Italian peninsula, and they raised an army to defeat the legions that were heading south. Okay. So the Roman army was outside of Neapolis at the time. They were kind of of a bit of a stalemate that they didn't have enough soldiers to assault the city but the Greeks didn't think they had enough to kind of take out the Roman legions outside of the city okay so Eschinanes came up with a cunning plan he would sail the majority of his army up the coast up the river Tiber and into Rome itself because Mm -hmm. the Greeks had a much stronger navy than the Romans at this point and the idea was to set out um, just before dawn sail up the coast and they'd arrive in Rome by darkness the next day so they were going to sail up the Tiber, attack Rome under the cover of darkness, kind of like a, a Trojan horse style victory over the Romans. Right. But Romans got wind of this. Um, they sent runners back to Rome and told them to extinguish all of the lights on the coast so that the Greek sailors didn't know where the mouth of the river was because they were arriving there at night. Right. So they missed the river Tiber, kept sailing north into the next day and beyond and ended up 
in the Polsevera River in northern Italy near Genoa. Now, this is a much smaller river. They managed to beach themselves almost entirely when they got there, and they couldn't turn the ships around. So there were about 35,000 Greek soldiers trapped in northern Italy. Right. Now, it gets worse for the poor Greeks at this point. Because this happened to be the territory of Gauls. The Gauls assumed this was some sort of invasion of their territory. They got their own army together and attacked the Greeks in northern Italy. So by this point, the Romans easily take Neapolis because it's almost undefended. And Herodotus says that they managed to carry off about 60,000 mine of loot. This is about one and a half million kilos. Of, like, treasure. Of treasure. Right. And then gets even worse for the Greeks, because what the Romans did with the treasure, they then hired mercenaries to defeat what remained of the Greeks, who were now trying to head back south by land down the Italian peninsula. Right. But sort of back into the Greek-owned parts of Italy. Yes. Right, okay. But the Romans, but the Romans hired mercenaries and they, the Greeks were defeated. Okay. And that is my tale of Herodotus. Right. So... This is kind of like the story of how Rome kind of first made its steps towards becoming an empire. Yes, how it made its stamp on the Italian peninsula first. Right, and it was a sort of massive mistake by the Greeks that enabled it. Yes, it was kind of one of those turning points in history that could have been. So if the Greeks had beaten back the Romans, Mm. would they have even left the Rome area Mm. at all? Okay, okay. Right, so, right, I'm going to kind of summarise as best I can in my head here. So you've got Greece and Rome around about the same, like, kind of existing at the same time. Rome is pushing to go and take over the Greek part of what's now modern Italy. Yes. So Greece sends loads of troops up the west coast of Italy to, while they're pushing south, to go into Rome itself and kind of attack it from the inside. Yes, they thought if they could sack Rome and nip the problem in the bud quickly, then war would be over. Right, but the Romans got wind of this, turned off all the lights in Rome, the Greeks missed the entrance to the river, kept on sailing, ended up in the wrong place, became trapped, were attacked by the French and then the Romans, and basically gave the Romans a free pass to take over all of their territories in Italy. Yes. Okay. And the irony of the Romans using the conquered loot to defeat what was left of the Greeks was the real salt in the wound for Herodotus. Right. So, yeah, they took all the money they could from these Greek places and used them to finance a war against the Greeks who would come to defend them. Right. Um, my knowledge of ancient history is impeccable, as we've uh, <laughs> as we've outlined before. So I have absolutely no kind of former knowledge of any of this. It all does sound very plausible, and it all sounds very wily and clever, which I can imagine, yeah, I can imagine the Romans were kind of like that when it came to defending themselves. So I kind of just... I can't really go on anything other than the fact that it just sounds really plausible. Um, and you can't, you're not even you're not going to question like the military aspects of could they get soldiers up the coast? How quick? How long would that take? And <laughs> no, because I just <laughs> like, it's I just have literally no point. Your of knowledge reference. is so. I wouldn't even know where to begin to question it like that. Like you could say anything, and I wouldn't know whether it was right or wrong. One th- one thing, like where Herodotus is writing this account. Yes. Where was he back in Greece? Um, he he was just travelling around at this point. When Herodotus... This is true, by the way. Mm. Uh, so when Herodotus went and wrote his histories, he travelled to the places he wrote about. So when he wrote about the Persian invasion of Egypt, he went to Egypt and tried to get find sources there. Okay. So he would try and go to get from the horse's mouth, as it were. Was he, Is there any likelihood that he was sort of on the ground during this? 
Very little likelihood. So it's, because it's this was, probably sort of hearsay. He would have been about 24 years old at the time. I don't know if he'd started writing histories by then or had any reason to be in Italy. So I think he would have either been in Greece or Turkey at the time. Right, okay. I mean, it seems like quite a straightforward story. It's not sort of like, Mm. there's not some kind of grand sting in the tail here, or it's not like massively weird, like Bill Bokes. There's there's no (laughs) kind of like, it's just, it just seems like a kind of, yeah, just a historical tale. So there's nothing so utterly outlandish that I would doubt it. So yeah, I'm going to say it's true. Final answer? Yeah. This entire story is a lie. I, you know, I, I like. I don't even care. <laughs> it's just, it's just like it's. What makes it a lie? Everything. I just thought on the basis of the last story we had from Herodotus, where he was talking about the eunuch who was had to go get hunted down, and yeah. the optician who went to Persia. Like I thought, I'll try and do something along those lines. <laughs> I, thought be, I thought you'd be a lot more incredulous at these these because these things can't happen. Why? Why can't they happen say, though? <laughs> sail up the Tiber to sack Rome. How how small are these ships? I don't know the size of Greek sailing ships. When you had a story about a eunuch traveling around the Middle East looking for an optician or something. Oh, you know a lot more about that. <laughs> like that was that was a story that seemed ludicrous. Yeah, that was true. Yeah, this is just like it just sounds like a tale from history. There's, there wasn't anything like oh well, all the all the ships were all on fire all the time. Like, there wasn't anything insane. <laughs> they took one and a half million kilos of gold. I don't, I, 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 it can't, you can't fit that much in a city. I don't know how much that is, though. <laughs> I think this is the fact that's finally broken us on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like, just, like I, I've it, sat and listened to it, and I like it. Just like, it's like being back at school. <laughs> I still, even if he said it was true, I'd still go, "I all right, okay, fine." I was trying to be like not too incredulous. I can so tell. I <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I'm never doing a Roman fact again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so before we get on to Paul's facts, so I have to mention we've had like a good 15 minute argument because I thought that was entirely ludicrous, but Paul has no point of reference and thinks it's normal. Absolutely not. Like, I, I, I still don't understand how you think that's a ludicrous story. Because everything about it sounds insane. <laughs> it doesn't. It's just lots of ships going around Italy. Why? What makes that ludicrous? I don't understand. Everything. Anyway, we'll continue this argument another day. This is what right. lockdown's done. Yeah. So, what's yes. your first fact, Paul? Right. Speaking of things that are ludicrous, I, I think uh, the the stakes are raised slightly higher on this one. Do you know what a cloud hopper is? Uh, I don't. It is a single person hot air balloon. Okay. <laughs> um, right. So uh, this is actually now quite a popular thing. You can kind of hire these, and it's like looks like a little kind of seat with a kind of little propane engine on the back of it, and you just sort of fly around with a hot air balloon above you. Th- th- you can do this today. But I'm going to tell you about the sort of first time that um, single-person hot air balloons became a bit of a craze back in the 1920s, okay? Originally, these these kind of single-person hot air balloons were invented, like, in the engineering industry. So people would strap a hot air balloon onto their back and, like, float up the side of a building to, to, do, this, <laughs> to do work. This is true. <laughs> the whole thing is yes or BS, okay? This is BS. Um, 
So it, they were originally developed in Ohio, and like if you were working on something but you didn't want to get a ladder out, you could uh, you'd put a balloon on your back and you'd float up in the air, obviously attached to a rope or something, so that you could kind of tether your way back down to the ground. Um, but yes, yeah, so they they were kind of originally they had a kind of real world application, but people started to see the idea that this could be kind of quite a fun little diversion. And an advert appeared, or a sort of little editorial appeared, in Popular Science magazine in 1923 with the headline, How would you like to own your own hand-powered jitney balloon? Okay. <laughs> okay. Jitney is a five-cent piece. So these were kind of quite cheap, these things. So this kind of became a bit of a craze. And the idea was that you would put one of these on your back and you would kind of be able to sort of bound around like as if you were on the surface of the moon. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this, was, this kind of went on for a few years. And another report turned up in 1927. And here's a, here's a quote from this report. <clears throat> How helpful this sort of thing would be. <laughs> we could strip the spring cherry tree without endangering our legs. We could, disp- <laughs> we could disperse with elevators and enter our offices on the third or fourth floors by merely leaping up to the window and crawling in. Okay. <laughs> so there kind of started to be like a real um, zeal for these kind of individual balloons. And there were adverts appeared that showed people with one of these on their back kind of bounding over hedges and across fields and things. Um, and people kind of started buying them. And this craze turned up in Britain in the late 1920s and in 1927 it came to the the attention of Arthur Conan Doyle (laughs) the uh, Sherlock Holmes author of course and he uh, he's quoted in the Daily Express in uh, March 1927 as kind of foreseeing these as a bit of a tool for the future he he imagined that um, people would walk around with what he called small balloons or hydrogen (laughs) hydrogen knapsacks on their back <laughs> that would be aids to pedestrians. But he realised that there, were, there might be problems with these because he said that uh, not too much should be attempted uh, and that you would need to monitor the difference between the lift of the balloon and the weight of the passenger. <laughs> OK, uh, so he said, what is needed is to turn the 15 stone man into a five stone man. That he can go, <laughs> go to the gym. <laughs> that he could have to... <laughs> Go to the gym, go to the gym and catch catch some sort of <laughs> wasting disease, um, so that he can go on his way swiftly and without fatigue. Better thirty foot strides under control than hundred yard springs, where we may be the sports of puffs of wind or unforeseen obstacles. I've got so many questions. Are you? <laughs> I'm nearly done. So uh, this report that turned up in the Daily Express said this craze is sort of we think is going to kind of sweep the country. So come to a display of this new technology at Edgware <laughs> Aerodrome, and it was at this sort of display that a RAF parachutist called Brainy Dobbs. <laughs> <laughs> decided to give a demonstration of this new technology. And so he straps one of these kind of single-person hot air balloons to his back and they inflate it. And he kind of starts sort of bounding around. And someone in the audience shouts out, for God's sake, those are live wires. And Brady Dobbs replies, I'll risk it. <laughs> and those, unfortunately, were his last words. And he struck those overhead wires uh, and was electrocuted. 
And um, that's so brainy, are you now, brainy dog? And this is kind of seen as sort of what really ended this craze. It was seen as incredibly uh, dangerous. Oh, it was that. It wasn't the fact that it was ridiculous. <laughs> and um, yeah, the fact that it had led to this poor man's poor man's death. He's now said to uh, haunt his former. <laughs> His former RAF barracks at uh, <laughs> RAF Henlow in Bedfordshire um, is old brainy right. dogs. But this is what sort of put pay to the 1920s craze for what are called uh, what were called balloon hoppers or uh, single person hot air balloons. Right. First of all, mm. how old was Arthur Conan Doyle in 1927? Oh, I don't know, actually. Um, he was probably quite old, because, I mean... Uh... That's, what, that's what makes me think. I don't think he'd want to be using one of these, <laughs> jumping around as like a 70 or 80-year-old man. What's he going to do? Why is he even condoning the use of these things? Why him? Well, towards the end of his career, he's kind of... Sh- well, he didn't shell... Went mad. <laughs> He can't, he didn't shelve being an author, but he he sort of became interested in all kinds of other pursuits and things. He became very interested in spiritualism and um and there's the whole thing of him believing in fairies after those pictures were forged and things. So he did become interested in other things and put a lot of his a lot of his time in later life into kind of proving or disproving that various things were possible. So um yeah, he's probably I, I don't know what year he was born, but by nineteen twenty seven he's he's certainly not a young man. Right. That's the first thing that makes me think it's BS. The <laughs> second thing there's literally just a sack of hydrogen on your back. Uh yes, but the early designs had hydrogen in, but they were later switched to helium because uh, there was a newspaper report that said that the people um, who used them would want to smoke and you can have a naked flame around helium but not around right. hydrogen. Right, this is this has got to be BS. Right, first of all, you if it was helium, how you'd need loads of helium to lift a human body any, any sort of distance off the ground. Well, it, Even if they were like, if it was used to kind of lower them back down gently, you'd still need... Like it would be massive. It would be like the Hindenburg or something. You're jumping, jumping around with the Hindenburg on your back. It wouldn't be the size of the Hindenburg. The Hindenburg had about 100 people on it. Yeah, so d- times that, well, d- reduce that by 100 times and there you've got it. That's still massive. Well, there wouldn't be the weight of like an engine and a gondola. Don't you be coming out with this <laughs> cloud hopping. Who invented this? Um, I don't know. I, like I say, it was just... You it, invented this. It, that, that's the correct answer. It, was the, it began as a sort of tool for engineers in Ohio. Um, and then people start, <laughs> started using them. What? The engin- what? In what? In what world would engineers get use out of this as a tool? Well, like, if you're working, surely if that, yeah, they'd need to be completely steady and stable to be working on something. Well, yeah, they, yeah. Wouldn't he be? Or just like fly up to the side of this ship, turn a bolt, and then fall to the ground again, and then jump up again? Well, you know, you you're not jumping, jumping up in the air and doing a couple of seconds work and then falling back down again. You you. Well, how do you stay in the air? You are tethered to a rope. And the rope sort of oh, this is re- reels you out a certain length. So say you're working on the side of a big chimney or something. You're, you're up there. You hold up the chimney with one hand and you do whatever work you need to do with the other. And then you pull yourself back in. And you haven't, and people, had, you haven't had to get a ladder out. And people imagined you could just jump into your office building. Yeah. From like on the fourth floor. You just think, sort of bound around and then jump up to the third or fourth floor and then crawl in through so the window. This is so ludicrously dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's maybe why it didn't take off. Well, it, it literally did of... take off. <laughs> hey! What was the name of that bloke who died? Brainy, Brainy Bob or something? <laughs> <laughs> Brainy Dobbs. Uh, Brainy um, Dobbs. RAF parachutist. 
Another thing, in 1927, were the paratroopers even a regiment then? <laughs> Look who you're asking. Say, were they using planes where people were parachuting? Uh, I, I, Obviously, I don't, know. don't know the answer. No, that I don't. Oh, I think it's brilliant. But again, the thing is, you were laughing a lot during that fact, <laughs> which makes me think you haven't made it up because you've, you found this and thought, oh, this is so funny. Isn't this ridiculous? Uh, it's more ridiculous Cloud than, than some ships going up the side of Italy and then getting stuck. <laughs> oh, don't, you, don't you get me started again. Do you know how big that other river was? It's tiny. <laughs> don't, no, I don't. <laughs> right. Um, I think I'm going to fall down on... No, I have to trust my gut and say this is BS. Okay. I think you've made this up because this is ridiculous. Brainy Dobbs. That sounds like a 1920s name. <laughs> Watch out, Brainy Dobbs. Those are live wires. Yeah. Yeah, this is BS. Okay. Has to be. You, has you to don't be. think that single person hot air balloons were all the craze in the 1920s? I do not. That story? Mm hmm. It's true. Son of a gun. <laughs> Everything's true. Poor Brainy Dobbs. <laughs> May he rest in peace. <laughs> at, at his uh, haunted RAF barracks. <laughs> this is ridiculous. No, it's all, I don't all want completely to... true. Arthur Conan giving... Doyle got involved. He, he thought we'd all be walking around with little knapsacks full of hydrogen. Right. I'm going to give myself a point on that one just because that was, <laughs> <laughs> that was ridiculous. No, it's all completely true. Yeah. There you go. Oh, well, well done, Paul. Thank you. Uh, I think that's, that's how I'm going to break the quarantine. I'm just going to fly out of here in a cloud hopper. <laughs> Well done, Paul. Mm. Um, another ludicrous fact yeah. you've done there. Um, I think we're going to go off the rails even more now oh, with my dear. next fact. Right. Because as is kind of a tradition on the last episode of Yes, It Oh, God. Here we go. Very... Tolkien or... <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm usually very liberal with bonus points. Oh, yes. Okay. So, and this is on etymology. So you might be in for a big win on this one oh, just because that's how nice I am. Right. I'm going to talk about idioms and phrases as well and mm. um, i know i know i know you've had like a few facts on haggard talks before about the origins of certain phrases just one or two in, yes <laughs> yeah and how in in different languages like it's often unusual how a phrase comes about mm. and that's kind of the point i wanted to bring out today the fact that in many different languages around the world they have very unique idioms where nobody's quite sure where it comes from mm. and it doesn't really make sense in any other languages right and i want to talk about russian idioms today okay because the, there's a lot of fun ones in here and this is where the bonus points are going to come in oh lord right okay so i'm going to give you five russian idioms mm -hmm. and i want you to guess what they actually mean and then my final part of this fact is i'm going to give you one that i might have made up or it might be true all right okay and then that that's going to be like the final cherry on top point right this. So there's six points up for grabs on this one, Paul. Oh, this Lord. could be my worst defeat yet. Am, but... am I likely to get any of these right? Or is this basically a way, you might do. A, a way you for might you to do. give yourself six <laughs> points? <laughs> no. Let's think, I don't get any points for this. This is uh, a, right, I'm, okay. tiny, I'm, I'm risking it all on this right, one. Right, okay. So you're ready for the first Russian idiom? <laughs> right. So if a Russian were to say to you, that's where the dog is buried, what would he mean? Uh, that's where he's buried his dog. <laughs> you're, not really getting, you're not really getting into the spirit. Um, like that, that sounds very much like, and that's the truth. Like that kind of thing. Like that's the end of that. It's very close. It's, um, 
that that's the root of the issue or that's the cause of an issue all right okay okay so you kind of um, i might give you half a point for that one i don't know uh no I, I, I don't think that's exactly the direction i had in my head no okay no points for that well see you've been very honest Paul. i, I like this yeah well I, I don't want to go storming ahead and make it absolutely impossible for you <laughs> to win <laughs> no i i made, i put this risk on myself Paul. <laughs> i'm gonna i'll take the hits okay so the second one there's no truth in standing on your feet <laughs> uh oh blimey there's no truth in standing on your feet does that mean something like there's no point in doing something that's uh, gonna happen anyway <laughs> Ooh, interesting th- this is why I, this is why i wanted to do this one with you because i wanted to, to kind of pick your etymology brain to see what you where you were going to go with but them. this is the problem with idioms is that there is absolutely no etymology involved at all they're completely <laughs> devoid of explanation usually so <laughs> don't don't pick apart my fact <laughs> it's just a stab in the dark <laughs> so that one means come in and sit down it's because <laughs> <laughs> all right okay so it's like an, an invitation to get someone to sit down yeah because it's supposed to be like a show of hospitality to say that the only way we'll get to the truth of the matter is if we all sit down together and start talking so if you stay right. standing up you're kind of outside of the group but if you right. come in and sit down then you'll get the truth all right okay oh i quite like that i would never have guessed that though you might get this one okay so number three so a russian man comes up to you in the street points in your face and says i'll show you where lobsters spend the winter <laughs> That means I'm having a lovely trip to the seaside. <laughs> now, the, the, does the context that you presented that in have any kind of bearing yes, on the I'm meaning? Yes, try, I'm trying, trying to help you out. So it's this. quite confrontational. Yes. Um, he's accusing me of seducing his wife. <laughs> <laughs> I've got no idea. No, that's just literally, it's a threat to stop. It's like, stop or else oh. I'll beat you up. Oh, really? I, t- I couldn't find what the exact origin of this I'll one was. Show you but where, I think where do lobsters spend the winter? I think that's the point. It's like you'll beat someone up so much and like hide the body somewhere. Oh, right. They'll, they'll, they'll never be found right. because we don't know where lobsters spend the winter. Oh, I quite like that. But number four. Right. The ocean comes up to a drunk man's knees, but a puddle comes up to his ears. This might be a bit of a tough one, this one. But a puddle comes up to his ears. Um, little things are very dangerous. <laughs> so are you talking about me? <laughs> I'm going to have that put on a cup for you. <laughs> uh, this one basically means drunk people brag so much that it's like as if they can walk into the ocean with great confidence. Oh. But... But when push comes to shove, they'll drown in a puddle because they were overconfident. Oh, I like that. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, you see, so there is some logic behind. Yeah. Some of these. No, that's good. I'd never worked that out, but that's good. So 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 far, no bonus I, points. I'm flying through them. <laughs> the, the, the last real one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a little bit of a story behind this one as well. But the phrase is, "Let's return to our sheep." Oh, I think I might know this one. Ooh, does, you might. does this mean let's get back to the matter at hand? Yes, yes. that's exactly it. <laughs> oh, you got a bonus point. I got it. <laughs> yeah, because the, uh, the only reason I know that is because that's an expression in French. Ah, this is exactly the story I was going to tell. Ah, right. Uh, Paul, as the etymologist, please, if you have like to tell the story. Oh, of the phrase. is it a court case? Uh, yes, it was originally, well, supposedly from medieval France. Right. And the legend has it that a French court was dealing with a case of stolen livestock. This is but it, they kept, yes. They kept going off topic and the judge eventually had to shout, let us return to the rams. 
Yes, that's it. I, I have read this before. I've probably written about it before. I was going to say, I probably was where I got it from, I think. <laughs> Don't ask me about my own books because I can't remember them. But the reason it's so popular in Russia is because in Renaissance Russia, they were very heavily influenced by the French court at the time, as was much of Europe. Right. And to adopt French sayings and French culture was seen as the height of civilization in the Renaissance. Ah, uh, right. So that's how that phrase made it over to Russian. Ah, uh, right. So, well okay. done. You've got a bonus point. Oh, I'll take so that. That's good. That means that yours, you can still technically win then. If I was suddenly like six points ahead. I don't mind. I like being the underdog. <laughs> so the last one, mm. this could be made up completely by me or it's another real Russian idiom. Okay. I like this. The idiom is every house has its Judas. All right. And I'll, I'll give you the explanation for that. I won't make you guess this one because this is the yes or BS fact. This is, doesn't refer to the people in the house. It refers to the fact that in every house, something is always breaking and always needs to be fixed. It's a very Russian commentary on the impermanence of everything. Right. The fact that no matter how long you live in a house, your Judas is going to pop up and betray you at any given moment and you'll have to fix it. Okay. And that is my yes or BS fact. Right. You know, this is difficult because that sounds very plausible. And the fact that it, it isn't like there's an untrustworthy person in every family or something. Mm. The fact that it's kind of just slightly twisted. So is it like something will break down when you need it? Yes. So you, it, it's your house is always going to betray you in some way. Right. See, that's quite clever. That makes me think that this might be true. But I also can imagine that you were in your house the other day and a light bulb went <laughs> <laughs> and you were just like, hmm, I think I'll use this and invented this alongside it. As much as I think this could be true, I also can absolutely see you, like your fridge will have broken down or something and, and that, like you've concocted this off that. I think that's more likely. <laughs> They're like, really? It seems very, okay. it seems very true, but <laughs> I just, I don't know. I think I'm just naturally distrustful of you now. <laughs> So, are you saying this is a bit too neat? I, 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 no, I, it isn't too neat because if this turns out to be true, it absolutely makes 100% sense. But just knowing how your brain works as well, I, I could just see something in your flat breaking and you're going, oh, I tell you, something always, always happens. Hmm, I think I'll use this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's. That, I think it's gone that way. I think. The, the, I think you've made this up. Is that your final answer? Yeah. No, you've made this up. BS. This idiom is BS, <laughs> and that is exactly what happened. <laughs> I it knew was when, it. It was when the bulb went in my bathroom. I had to shower. I had to shower in the dark, and I was like, "Oh bloody hell! Every this bloody house." Bloody Judas light bulb. I, that's just exactly how I thought it would play out. Something will have happened and you'll have kicked off with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just had a little bee in your bonnet about it and then concocted this around it. That's exactly right. That that fact worked backwards. That happened. And then I thought, ooh, I'll make an idiom out of that. Who has interesting idioms? Russia. They're, they're about to have some fun ones. And then I just sort of researched them. I can't believe that I saw through that. Like, I kind of feel like I should just still give you a point. That's insane. I, just, I must just be able to, like, see the workings of your brain now. This does happen every now and again, where we'll so completely see through the other person's facts. Absolutely. But no, oh. So you're 3-1 up now, Paul. Let's see if I can pull this back.
Right, so did you fix the light bulb in the end? I did, actually. Uh, it, it's a funny story. Oh, here we go. <laughs> it's not that funny, really. It, it, for some reason, the last person who owned this house put a dimmer switch in the bathroom. Um, so I had, I had replaced the bulb, and apparently I, it wasn't a dimmer switch bulb. Oh, right. So I, called, I thought it was something to do with electrics because of the steam getting in there. So I called an electrician out, and he came out and said, you've just got the wrong bulb in there. <laughs> So I was like, oh, bollocks. I felt like a right idiot. So this is where your anger at the light bulb comes from. Exactly. The, the Judas where. of your household. I was so angry at the last... Who puts a dimmer switch in the bathroom? I, I've always thought when I've been around at your house that that is an unusual thing to have. Uh, oh, I'll just go for a nice relaxing pee. <laughs> yeah, get some ambient lighting going on. <laughs> anyway, that's one yeah. of my own problems yes. I've got to live with. Anyway. What's your next fact, Paul? Right. Uh, my next fact, I'm going to tell you about... A 19th century presidential candidate who travelled around the world three times, twice just out of spite. Oh, God. <laughs> We've hit an eccentric. Yeah, just a little bit. Right, OK. So before we go on to that, some facts about um, the novel Around the World in 80 Days. Um, you know, I wrote a book called Around the World in 80 Words. Oh, you did? I, yeah. I remember that. When that first came out, if you tried to search for that on Google, Google went... Um, I think you actually mean Around the World in 80 Days. <laughs> Given <laughs> Of all the books to compete with. I know, it's like, it, like auto-corrects to a vastly more successful book. So yeah, slightly uh, short-sighted PR there on my behalf. But anyway, uh, it was published in 1872 by Jules Verne. Um, English translation was 1873. Um, in the book, the wager that Phileas Fogg um, accepts before he travels around the world... Um, is £20,000. That'd be two and a half million today. Oh, yeah, so it's a, still... It's quite a big wager, but I thought it would be kind of even bigger than that. Yeah, I thought it would be like the tens of millions yeah, of equivalents. Yeah, like I mean, someone went two and a half million to travel around the world on your own, like spending all your own money. <laughs> I'd just be like, you know what? No, like, Master T's all right. I'm, I'm good, thanks. Yeah, yeah I, he claimed to have been inspired to write the book after reading um, a report in a Paris newspaper, which kind of summarised a lot of the kind of transport things that happened in the in the 19th century like the Suez Canal opening and the big transcontinental railway across the states and apparently in this newspaper report it said that um a sort of sub 80 day trip around the world was now kind of possible and he thought oh you know I'll write a, a book along those lines so that's kind of what the story is about where this book came from but although that's the kind of technically the the story behind the book a Massachusetts businessman called George Francis Train would have you <laughs> would have you believe otherwise and that he was actually the inspiration for Phileas Fogg. Okay. Okay. He um, was born in Boston in 1829 to a very uh, devout Methodist family and it was kind of said that he was supposed to become a minister but he kind of turned his back on all of that and went into all sorts of business ventures he was involved in different things all over the world in his youth. So he was involved in some of these big kind of transport firsts. He was involved in railway companies across uh, across the USA, but he was also involved in setting up uh, shipping routes across the Pacific. In Europe, he helped install the first tram system in 
in Liverpool, which is a bit random. So he kind of had his finger in lots and lots of different pies. Uh, probably because of that, he was also kind of quite unsuccessful and he went he went to jail a number of times for uh, sort of fraud and um, debt and uh, once for obscenity. Um, really? You, yeah. can't, you can't go to prison for... Well, it depends well, yeah, on the season, Yeah, you could in the 1870s or whenever it was that he went to prison. Um, <laughs> so he, he kind of had like a bit of a checkered past given that he was caught at kind of brought up in quite a devout family. But he kind of became a bit of a sort of jack-of-all-trades by having all these different ventures all over the place. And this kind of gave him the confidence to go, you know what, I think I'll run for president. So he ran for president <laughs> on a Republican ticket in 1870. He, of course, attracted uh, absolutely no votes, uh, largely for two reasons. The first is that he, his, the sort of tagline of his campaign was that he was the great American crank. Um, <laughs> that was his campaign line. I think crank in the sense of like a crank businessman who just like tries his hand at everything. So it doesn't make oh, him... Oh, not like, not like a, a, a miserable... Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe you had that in mind. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty bad presidential tagline. Yeah, it's not the, not the best idea. But that's probably why he didn't get any votes. And also because he abandoned the presidential race halfway through just to travel the world. I don't know whether he effectively dropped out of the race or, or quite why he started doing this. But in 1870, as I say, he left New York, travelled on uh, the railway across to San Francisco. From there, he boarded a ship across to Yokohama in Japan. From there, down to Singapore, around the, down around India, through the Suez Canal, into Europe. Um, and he arrived in France in 1871, and because of sort of the various contacts that he'd had in Europe, he kind of became slightly embroiled in the revolutionary movement in France um, and was imprisoned for two months. Um, and eventually the president, whoever happened to have won the presidential race that year, uh, stepped in and had to have him on a diplomatic point removed from prison and sent back to the United States. So um, from France, he moved across to England and then I think he sailed back to New York from Liverpool again. So he kind of used his contacts in Europe to get himself back home. If it weren't for those two months imprisoned in revolutionary France, he would have managed this trip in 80 days. And so um, he claimed that he'd been around the world in 80 days and it had been a fantastic trip. Lo and behold, two years later, uh, Jules Verne comes out with Around the World in 80 Days. So he starts saying, Jules Verne stole my thunder. I'm the real Phileas Fogg and kind of makes a little bit of a name for himself as being the real Phileas Fogg who went all around the world. Now, from here, we, we skip forward to 1889 when a journalist, a New York journalist called Nellie Bly... Have you heard this story? No. I, I should say this part of this story isn't uh, part of the fact. This is, this is completely true. The fact that a journalist called Nellie Bly in 1889 kind of dropped everything and the newspaper that she was working for in New York funded her to travel around the world on her own um, in less than 80 days. And she did. She did it in 72 days. Um, and she became very successful and she became something of a kind of celebrity at the time. So our character, Mr. Train, he, by this point, is not only furious that Jules Verne stole his story, he's now furious that Nellie Bly has stolen his story and done this trip around the world eight days faster than he did. After that, uh, he decides, well, the only way that I can do this 
is to do this trip again just to beat Nellie Bly. In 1890, he manages to convince another newspaper, uh, the Tacoma Evening Ledger. Tacoma and Washington. Oh, well, he's, get, he's getting the big names yeah. then. Uh, he managed to convince them to finance another trip around the world. So in 1890, he sets off from San Francisco again, across Yokohama to Singapore, um, <laughs> down through the Suez Canal, finally gets his way across France to Calais, um, and from Cali, he ends up back in New York. But of course, the finish line this time is San Francisco. And he stays in New York for three days until he's guaranteed a seat on the train. <laughs> well, he is called Mr. Train. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if he hadn't done that and he just got on the first train that turned up, he would have done this in 64 days. As it happens, he, he stayed in New York for three days waiting for a more comfortable trip on the train and ended up doing it in 67 days, which is still shorter than Nelly Bly. It still kind of hasn't made him as famous and as successful as he wanted to. So he decides <laughs> the year afterwards, in 1892, I'm going to give this one more stab. So he sets off again all the way around the world, similar route, um, San Francisco to Yokohama and then back through the Suez Canal. And he manages it this time in 60 days. And kind of by this point, he's become less kind of famous for being Phileas Fogg and just famous for this person who's gone around the world so many times. <laughs> so he has a sort of slight kind of wave of fame by this point in 1892. But uh, by this point, he's 63 so he kind of can't handle doing it again. And uh, mm. that's the end of his trips around the world. He retires and sort of drifts off into history. And eventually died in uh, 1904. So yeah, he, di he died not, not so long after that. But this is the story um, of George Francis Train, the uh, presidential candidate who decided to take three trips around the world. OK, so my first question would be, he's running for president in 1870. He decides to head off to go around the world. Mm -hmm. I guessing were the elections still held in november back in 1870 as well as they are today? oh i don't know yes i'm guessing that they would be because that's kind of quite a long-standing tradition isn't it i think so i don't know when that started mm. but from what you're saying he was actually in like revolutionary france as the third republic was being born <laughs> so at the time he should have been in this, he wouldn't have even made it back in time for the election. No, he, 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 wasn't, um, he wasn't like the final Republican candidate on, oh, on, on, on the ticket so against just... the Democrats. He was like... Oh, of course. Yeah, of course. He, he was just, he, we, we... I'm going to run for president as the Republican choice. And of course, none of the Republicans picked him. <laughs> no, no, no one why. wanted the great American crank as their candidate on, on the ticket. <laughs> uh, so that's probably why he dropped out and decided to kind of dally his way around the world. So he's been done for fraud in the past. Mm -hmm. He's been arrested for obscenity. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the fraud he'd, he'd committed? I don't know. I know that um, he, there was a lot of uh, debtors charges and um, I don't think he was ever declared bankrupt, but there was a lot of sort of um, feeling of repay debts and things. So perhaps it was all sort of bundled up with that. But there's a whole list of charges that he was found guilty of in his lifetime be kind of behind him. Okay, it sounds, this is very, it's got a ring of truth to it, mm -hmm. again, but he doesn't sound eccentric enough for you to have made him up, mm -hmm. like, but then again, there have been crazier eccentrics who've been true, mm -hmm. so maybe you've just kind of, you're playing it safe, mm -hmm. just kind of, oh, he's gone around the world three times, mm -hmm. true, I'm, so I'm leaning on true with this one. <laughs> uh-huh. You see, this is like, I can't see your face to get the reaction, uh, well. but I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm trying to go on tone of voice. <laughs> Right. I don't think I can interrogate this anymore, and I'm going to say that this is true. Yes. Okay. That story, 
is true. Ah, uh, yeah, it had like a ring of truth to it. Yeah, completely it true. Was, it, it wasn't madcap enough for me to disbelieve it, mm-hmm. but it had just it just it's kind of like my first fact for you. It's like if that sounds <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, he, he, um, apparently he was sort of very angry that people kept stealing his idea to travel around the world. So he just kept on doing it. As if you've just got the time and money to do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for all of his sort of business failures, I think he was a very wealthy man and he was certainly very well connected. But uh, yeah, he was, uh, yeah, travelled around the world. I think that's my new life goal then, to travel around the world from spite. <laughs> Interesting fact, Paul. Uh, Around the Mm. world in 66 days or whatever it was. Uh, I'm going to finish off on... It's something we've touched on very kind of lightly in some of my other facts, but it's not one I've ever done a full fact on. I'm going to talk about the Ottoman Empire. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. I see. I'm just on edge because I know this is your finale one. Don't worry. Don't worry. You don't need to know anything about the Ottoman Empire to guess this fact at the end. It's quite a okay. it's quite a fun one when we get there in the end. Okay, right. Um, but as we said, Ottomans they came out of Anatolia in central Turkey, and mm. some little fun side facts: sign language may have been invented in the Ottoman Empire. Oh, really? Because in the Ottoman court, the Sultan valued deaf pages and doormen who wouldn't be able to listen in on any secret meetings that were going on. Oh, that's interesting. But, so they could, so that means the Sultan could have his Grand Vizier or his generals and he would discuss sensitive information, but then he could communicate right. in sign language to his servants to go, please go and get some more wine or something. And right. it was very common, apparently. And we don't know when it was probably invented, but it was around the 16th or 17th centuries. Unfortunately, it's all been lost to time at the moment. There's only there's only reference to the use of sign language. Nobody knows the what the hand movements are today, unfortunately. Another fun fact. I've kind of put this one in because it's relevant to our current lockdown situation. Mm. Because, because many sultans had so many wives and concubines, they would have so many potential heirs for the throne that a, a lot of them had to be locked up in a wing of the palace that was called the cafes, or which literally translate as the cage. So you you could, in theory, have an Ottoman sultan who'd lived their entire life in the cage before being allowed out even once. And it was a way. Oh, good. It was a way to keep the, your brothers, uh, cousins, uncles, kind of locked away, so they didn't try and claim power. Oh, that's awful. Well, it's because they had that many wives, and every son legally had a claim to the father's throne and every male relative did. There was actually a a point in the early Ottoman history where when the sultan died, his heirs would kind of fight Fight to fight at the fittest to see who would become the next sultan and they would often kill their own brothers. But it was made worse in the Ottoman Empire by the number of wives and concubines that people had. Yeah, it's like it, you you can either lock up your all of your offspring in a cage <laughs> or wasn't. just just have a smaller family. It was sorry, I should probably explain that a bit better. It was called the cage, but it was actually a, yeah. it was a giant wing of the palace. So right. they were living in relative Yeah, but still but they can't ever go anywhere. That's though, true, they? but they lived in relative luxury. Lovely. That's what I thought because you know it's like we're in this <laughs> lockdown situation at the minute. There's a fun fact to go with. Oh dear. But the fun fact I'm going to finish on today from this point on this is yes or BS. Okay. This may well be one of my new favorite facts. Oh lord. Um... I, this is your last one this season <laughs> so I'm just it could be anything oh god you you'd never guess where i was going with this in a million years here we go did you know that in the 17th 18th and 19th century ottoman empire if 
a grand vizier had been sentenced to death, he could spare his life if he won a sprint race against the palace gardener. <laughs> and this this race why the gardener because the gardener was also a bodyguard and he headed up a kind of 5000 strong group of gardeners who were also bodyguards <laughs> they were five, they, an army of 5000 gardeners yes because the palace gardens were very large they'd have to be so in a so the kind of the sultan who originally created this cast of warrior gardeners they thought they'd mm. kind of double up on the role well if i've got this many gardeners anyway i may as well arm them and have them <laughs> and have them be palace guards this is like the the family thing you know there's such an e easier solution to that rather than go i've got this many gardeners so i'll just arm them and make them also my bodyguards you know, the answer is have fewer gardeners <laughs> But have smaller gardens. There was an element of ceremony. They weren't all gardening all the time, obviously. There was an element of ceremony to it, and it was kind of the originally grew out of the palace garden. Right, okay. So this race, and it was only given to the Grand Vizier, this honour. So everyone else who was sentenced to death would just be executed. But the Grand Vizier being kind of the equivalent of the Prime Minister in the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. he was. So it's if, if he was sentenced to death. Yes. The Grand Vizier. Yes. Right. Okay. So, but it, it happened more often than you thought because there's some, I've got some tales to tell. Uh, okay. Okay. So the basics of this race: the Grand Vizier, who's been sentenced to death, he's like, right, I'm, I've got to get in training here. He had to run 300 yards from the palace to the fish market gate at the south end of the palace. If he made, right. if he made it through the fish market gate and into the fish market before the head gardener. His life would be spared. Right. But bear in mind, these gardeners double up as bodyguards, so they're they're doing military training. They're ripped. They're like pretty healthy. And the, the grand vizier right. is probably like a life of luxury, sitting on couches, yes. um, enjoying fine foods and and delicacies. Yes. Okay. And the last recorded evidence of a grand vizier actually winning this race was as late as eighteen twenty two. That was the last time they, they, one of them won it. Yes. And they were so impressed that he'd actually managed to win it because nobody expected him to win it. The Sultan said, actually, you can come back and I'm going to make you the governor of Damascus. <laughs> what a prize. <laughs> but how, how old was this vizier? Do we know? I don't know, which is also another reason why not many of them won the race is because you'd imagine yeah. they'd be in their 40s, 50s, kind of advising the Sultan for some time. Right. But still, it was an option for them. Nobody quite knows where this tradition started, but it kind of died out by the mid-1800s. Right. And that is, that is my <laughs> fact, Paul. Did the Grand Vizier win a sprint race against the head gardener in Istanbul? <laughs> right. Okay. I told, so, I told you we were finishing on a good one. This is unusual. Mm. Um, right. So, Ottoman Empire, only the Grand Vizier. Only if the Grand Vizier. For what for whatever reason, mm. could have his sentence commuted mm. if he beats the gardener <laughs> in a running race yeah. from the from the palace to the fish market. Yes, I just I, again I have absolutely no point to go in on on this. It just uh, what like there's just so many odd things. There's the discrepancy in the sort of age and health <laughs> of a, a palace gardener come come bodyguard and. As you say, someone who's sort of lived a life of luxury alongside the Sultan, there's a the thing of like, what would he have had to have done to be sentenced to death 
It could be for any reason, really. Um, he could have gone against the Sultan's wishes, displeased him in some way. And you've got to remember, right. the Grand Vizier isn't always going to be a supporter of the Sultan. He might try to ferment rebellion against him if he favours one of his brothers. Right. So there's okay. all sorts of different reasons they might want to kill the Grand Vizier. Right. Okay. So it could just be sort of like treason. Yes. Right. Okay. Oh, well, that makes kind of... Well, that part of that makes more sense, but the rest of this makes no sense at all. <laughs> a running race. I can imagine I can imagine if this was true, that it was started as like the vizier was absolutely never, had not a chance in hell that he was ever going to win That's it. That's interesting. Like it was a kind of a joke of the sultan. It's like, oh, if, it's like, if you can outrun yeah, my not, bodyguard, then you're yeah, free to go. Not only am I going to have you executed, but I'm going to humiliate you first. <laughs> That's not a bad theory. <laughs> like, I should have put that in. Um, but then, like, is this true? <laughs> I like, but, like, that's fair enough that, you know, it could have started as, like, sort of a revenge thing. Would it have taken hold and become a tradition? Like, well, yeah, I can imagine that it would have done. It's, is there any, do you know if there's any precedent for this? Like, did this kind of thing take place in any other cultures or empires? Um, not that I know of, but there, like you mentioned, there right. are kind of, I think there are cases of like a humiliating execution or being made to do a humiliating task before being executed. That right. that okay. sort of thing definitely did happen. It's hard. I can see this being true, but I don't know. I've just got a little doubt in my head. I honestly don't know which way to go on this. I think I'm going to go with my gut and say that it's BS. I can see you making this up. Mm, okay. Because you want to tell a story about the Ottomans so you've come up with this. I can imagine it being true. The thing of it sort of lasting until the 1800s kind of makes sense. Do we know, like, that was the last time that the Vizier won the race. Was that sort of, like, the only time that one of them won it, or...? Um, I don't know. That was the most recent example of a Vizier winning. Right, so I but don't, it, I... did it happen afterwards and one of them didn't win? No, or... I think he he was the last man to win the race in 1822. Okay, but it, so it might have taken place after that, but they didn't win. Yes. Right, I don't care. I've, was it like a common occurrence? Is there like records of this taking place often? Not often. There's, it's scattered throughout the Ottoman Empire history. It's not like it didn't happen every week or anything. It's like, yeah. we'll get a new Grand right. Vizier in. I think it was more recorded by the fact that it was so unusual. If, uh, yeah. and because it was quite rare, that's why a lot of the names of the viziers were recorded, especially the okay. winners. Oh, right. So, yeah, they were just recorded because they took part in this ludicrous race. Mm. <laughs> no, I think I think this is BS. I think you've wanted to talk about the Ottomans, <laughs> so you've concocted this. I, I can imagine, like, the, the gardeners being bodyguards is true. I don't think the viziers were made to race against them to, <laughs> to, commute, to commute their own death sentence. That's too outlandish. I think this is BS. Final answer? I think I might have got that wrong, but yeah, I'm sticking with that. I'm going to go with BS. This race is completely true. <laughs> no way! <laughs> yep. The grand, oh. the, the grand vizier who won in 1822, count his lucky stars... What? That's, That's insane. Like I was saying, no one's quite sure where it came from. It probably did come from, like, a sultan at some point wanted to humiliate, like, a fat grand vizier. I said, look, go on, yeah. run for your life. Ah, uh, yeah, and right. And they, <sighs> they were gardener bodyguards in the palace in Istanbul. They were called the, the Bostanji, which I think, but that literally just means gardeners. Oh, right. Again, oh, that's interesting. And I think that as well may have come from... Like they were originally gardeners who found esteem with the sultan and they were elevated in position and became 
bodyguards right. as well. Their numbers just increased over the years. I think um, when the Ottoman Empire was at war, they numbered 12,000 of the kind of the royal gardeners who would go to war as well. Oh, wow. So I think a lot of it, and, uh, I don't know how much gardening they actually did. And I think... <laughs> So these are going to be like young, strong kind of labourers. Yes, they're they're not, they're, they're not going to be kind of like wandering around pruning daisies. No, it's not capability brown. Yeah, it's like wandering in. They're like trained oh, soldiers. Oh wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so that did happen. The vizier could race for grief. his life. I think we should bring that back Good now, grief. like a modern justice system. Oh, if you ever come into power, this country is more ruined than it already is. <laughs> Right, well, that was a good fact. They're tones. I'm a bit good. I didn't get that right. I think that's how we should... If this is a tiebreaker, this is how we should finish finish the season. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, you gave away a bonus point, so oh, yeah, it can't we're be currently tied. Oh, right. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're three all, so this is the decider. Ooh. I'm kind of going to pull something that I've, I think I've only ever done once before, which is to return to a fact we've already had this episode. Ooh. Did you yeah, ca- oh, look at gonna... this. This is chaos. <laughs> Can't be doing I'm this. I'm going to talk again about another trip around the world. <laughs> okay. So um, a little recap of what we had. George Francis Train uh, went around the world three times. Nellie Bly, the journalist, she did her trip in 1889. There was another trip in 1903 by a man called James Willis Sayre. And he did it in 54 days using only public transport. This is one of the strangest ones. This is so strange. I was actually going to use it as the final fact here, Um, which was in 1928, a Danish boy scout named (laughs) Pale Hold, uh, who was only 15 at the time. Um, There's a a newspaper in Copenhagen offered to celebrate the 100th birthday of, well, what would have been the 100th birthday of Jules Verne, offered a a Boy Scout from from somewhere in Denmark the chance to travel around the world. And they they got him to do it completely on his own. (laughs) How odd. Yeah, this 15-year-old went off and he did it in 44 days. Jeez, eh? Um, and he became a, a huge celebrity at the time. He ended up being like a sort of film star in Denmark. He, <laughs> he made such a name for himself. And there's a rumour that it was him who inspired uh, Hergé to invent Tintin. Yeah. Um, because this story became so big. Hergé said that that wasn't the case, mm. but there are a lot of coincidences between the kind of time and seem about right. So, you know, it's kind of questionable whether or not this did inspire him. No, that isn't the around the world story. That I thought that's the one I was going to use, but that isn't what I'm going to use. I'm going to talk to you about. Um, a, 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 you could call him a Victorian eccentric, but he's not. He's a sort of Edwardian eccentric. A man called uh, Henry or Harry Bensley, and he went around the world <laughs> in some sort of steam-powered helicopter. What is what's this going to be? He went around the world with an iron mask on, <laughs> protecting his identity the entire time. And that's like kind of the tip of the iceberg of this story. Oh, God. I should say there are two kind of versions of this. Um, I'm going to tell you the first one and then tell you the kind of sting in the tail one after that. So the, the kind of canon story, if you like, uh, was that in 1907 at a club in London called the National Sporting Club, the millionaire tycoon J.P. Morgan, the American uh, tycoon, was having a conversation with the Earl of Lonsdale, who is um, the namesake of the Lonsdale belt, the the boxing competition. Uh, They were having a a conversation in this sort of gentleman's club, following all of these other stories about people travelling around the world. 
they were talking about whether it would be possible to travel around the world and remain anonymous to keep your anonymity, if you like, never be recognized and have no one in the world know who you are but become very successful for traveling around the world. And this conversation comes up. So JP Morgan, he says that it's impossible. The Earl of Lonsdale says that it is possible. So JP Morgan says $100,000 says that this isn't possible. So they have this huge high stakes bet. And another person who's in this club, this uh, Henry Bensley, a very wealthy guy who's got lots of um, investments in Russia, he says, I'll take that bet. And what's more, be the guinea pig of this entire process. So these uh, three guys sit down and they start kind of concocting the rules of Henry Bensley's uh, trip around the world. The first and the kind of most famous one is that he has to be masked the entire time. But as they start talking, they eventually come up with 15 different rules that he has to kind of fulfill in order for this to happen. Uh, Not only does he have to be masked, he has to self-finance the entire trip, starting only with a pound note in his pocket. He had to, before he set off around the world, he had to travel to every single county in the United Kingdom. What? This is is already ridiculous. And send a postcard back to the club from everywhere that he stopped. He had to push a child's pram the entire way. He he could only take one spare change of underclothes. And um, among the other rules, he had to find a wife on this journey (laughs) who who had absolutely no idea who he was. So there are, as I say, there are more rules that he had to abide by, but uh, that's just sort of some of them. So um, this bet kind of becomes more and more ludicrous that the press starts to get involved and this trip around the world gets kind of hyped up quite a lot. So by the time Henry Bensley, wearing uh, like kind of the helmet of a suit of armour with... Um, <laughs> I thought with it was just little... like a face mask or something. Not like... Oh no, like it's, it's a helmet, like a full sort of visor helmet um, that covers his entire head. It ha- also had a little prong on top that held a little piece of card saying the man in the iron mask oh. on it. God. By the time um, he sets off from Trafalgar Square on New Year's Day 1908, so the following year, at half past ten in the morning, there's a huge crowd and he's there with his pram <laughs> and his, uh, his helmet. And the pram, I should say, was full of postcards and pamphlets advertising who he was and explaining the rules of the bet. And the idea was that he would be able to sell these to finance his trip. Uh, so he's walking off from Trafalgar Square, um, heading into whatever the next county was so that he can send his first postcard. And people are throwing money at him. So um, he's walking out there kind of, you know, it's like it's like Palm Sunday. People are throwing cash onto the ground to, to help him on his way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, sure the message of Palm Sunday wasn't to throw money on the ground, but <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, as I say, one of the rules was that that he had to find a wife on this trip. But this had become so hyped up that um, he eventually received two hundred different marriage proposals from people all over the world who who sort of um, wrote to this club saying, "I don't care who he is. I want to be involved in this story. I, w- I want to marry the uh, anonymous man in the iron mask as he walks around the world." So that was just one of the rules, kind of. Tick- 
picked off. So he sets off, as I say, from Trafalgar Square and effectively kind of vanishes into the country. And there are various stories of him kind of turning up here and there. There's one, uh, he was arrested in Kent for selling his postcards without a license and he was brought before the magistrate still wearing his mask. Um, And the magistrate asked him to remove it and he explained the bet. And the magistrate said, okay, we'll go along with this. And he's recorded in the (laughs) the assize records as just man in mask. And he's char- he was charged uh, two shillings and sixpence for trading without a license before he was allowed to move on to presumably Kent or Sussex or whatever the next county was. Uh, he also turned up at Newmarket Races where he met Edward VII. Um, <laughs> and there's two versions of this. Either he asked the king's autograph and the king wanted nothing to do with him or the story was so famous that Edward VII asked the man's autograph and the man refused because he didn't want anyone to know who he was so he didn't mm. want to write his own name so he turned down the king's request for an autograph but from there from from Newmarket he sets off uh, travels his route was uh, England Scotland Ireland and Wales from there across to Canada and America still holding his pram uh, from there, he had to go down to South America, as I say, still with his pram and his visor, across the Pacific, New Zealand, Australia, Japan, uh, India, a detour to South Africa, back up the coast of Africa through Egypt into Italy. And the story goes that by this point, he'd been on the road for six years. Jeez. Um, and he arrived in Genoa in 1914, only for the First World War to break out. <laughs> Um, so now this ludicrous trip around the world kind of that's, isn't the most... That's so funny anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, in the middle of war-torn Europe. Um, so the bet is cancelled and he's brought home. The whole kind of story falls flat. He ends up fighting for his country. Worse than that, um, all of his investments in Russia go pop in the 1917 revolution. Um, so he ends up sort of penniless. And he ends up uh, getting a job as a, a cinema doorman and then eventually working for the uh, YMCA before he died in uh, 1956. So that is the sort of ro- romanticised version of this story, uh-huh. which could still be true. But sort of muddy in the waters of this obscure trip around the world is the fact that uh, almost exactly a year after he set off from Trafalgar Square on the 1st of January 1908, on the 9th of December 1908, a letter was printed in uh, a London periodical called Answers that claimed to be from the man in the Iron Mask, who has by this point sort of disappeared somewhere into Britain and is occasionally sending postcards back (laughs) to this club in London. But this letter said that the entire thing was a hoax and it had already been called off. And actually, he'd never met... J.P. Morgan. (laughs) He'd never met uh, the Earl of Lonsdale. He wasn't a wealthy businessman. He'd actually come up with it while he was in jail for bigamy (laughs) in in South Africa. He he was released from from jail with, I think, something like 30 shillings in his pocket um, and decided the only way that he was going to make any money back was to go through with this ludicrous hoax. So he used the very little money that he came out of jail with to buy a helmet uh, spent a long time kind of spinning gossip across London and getting pamphlets printed up saying that he was doing this. So by the time he left Trafalgar Square, there was this great, huge parade. But as soon as he left London, he basically kind of stopped <laughs> making any real effort. He did eventually travel around about 2,000 miles around Britain. So lots of these postcards did turn up. And still to this day, people have some of uh, the Man in the Iron Masks postcards and and there are pictures of him kind of visiting various parishes across Britain but he eventually kind of gave up 
somewhere outside Wolverhampton. <laughs> took the mask off, never found his wife because he'd already married in 1898. And uh, that was the end of the entire thing. So, whichever version of the story you want to believe, it's entirely up to you. But the fact is that in 1908, a man set off around the world uh, wearing uh, a suit of armour helmet. Right. There's a lot going on here. So I've got a... Yes. A lot of questions to ask. So this completely anonymous bloke, he's made up all of it. Well, potentially made up all of this whole story. He's never met J.P. Morgan. He's Yeah, that's if you believe this letter that was printed around about a year later saying that it had all been a hoax. So after that letter, why did the rest of the legend continue to get fueled? Like people saying, oh, he's gone here. He's met King King Edward. He's, he's... <laughs> I think this is sort of because he did kind of go through with some of the journey. Like I say, he did travel around about 2000 miles across Britain. So in those kind of 12 months in between, he was kind of still concocting his own story and still kind of traveling around sending postcards and things uh it's very unlikely that he ever actually left britain so how did there's no, there's no record that you kind of actually went abroad so how did the rest of the story come about like uh, his travels across america and then landing in italy when the first world war was about to start and then he became a soldier like where's all that come from yeah this is uh... this is the the whole sort of legend of the man that's uh, that's come about some people will claim that that part of the story is completely true and that he did finish the trip and he did carry this pram to South Africa (laughs) (laughs) but other people will say that because there isn't really any hard proof after the sort of British postcards were sent um, that none of that actually happened. Where did he get a plate mail helmet from as well? He just bought it in a shop in London. Who who sells those in the 1900s? I don't know. I'm so torn on this one because... (laughs) This this is giving me memories of that man who made the museum to himself that you can oh, that you yes. completely made up. That's like season that one. Was I think season that one. one you got yeah. me on that one. It's difficult to question this because it's kind of this. Um, this story is probably a hoax. This one might be true. So is the yes or BS mm. fact? Is has this the been entire docu- thing? Has this been documented in either form? Yes. Yeah. It's not. Did he actually achieve this? It's. The entire thing. Does the fact that this even has two different endings exist? Right. I'm probably going to kick myself for this, but I'm going to say this is true. (laughs) (laughs) It is. If you've got to have made this up, haven't you? I I don't know. I mean, season finale. Have I I given you a two-pronged end to the story just to muddy the waters even more? Right. That's it. For For the season finale, I'm going to say... This is true. Okay. That's my final answer. Right. You think a man in 1907 set off from London with a pram and a mask on his head. I think he... A chain and like a plate mail helmet. I think, yes, he did. And then I think the re- that this someone documented this story. And this okay. was someone who was probably called Paul Jones and it was done last week. <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm, st- I'm sticking with my guns. Okay. That entire story... Is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the fact that there's like a two-pronged end to it is completely true. Some people will say that he did set off and he did achieve some of his travels before the war came out. And um, yeah, other people say the whole thing was a complete hoax. Hey, look at that. And I think that puts me on... I think this is the first episode I've actually won this season. 
and I, <laughs> oh, does that mean I've won a season? I think I think you have. I think you've won. Finally, season four. <laughs> no, finally. The, my crown, my crown. It's all, it all was all downhill from six nil in episode one. <laughs> oh, that seems a lifetime ago. God, now. I know the beginning of this podcast is a lifetime ago. <laughs> it's been, it was a fun one. We learned some interesting stuff. It's been a bit a bit of a random season. And this I think one. my new one of my new favourite all time facts has got to be the Grand Vizier racing against the head gardener. <laughs> <laughs> that's up there. That's up there in my top facts now. That is a very unusual one. Mm. Yeah, I think I'd, my favourite ones are those Hungarian jokes. Oh, about, uh, the, the angry pig. Yeah, um, I, I just I'm still kind of recovering from that one. No, I think I think that takes it for top fact of the season. That one. <laughs> Yeah. But folks, we will be back at some point. We've got to be entertaining through the lockdown, so we might be back sooner rather than later. <laughs> exactly. And we should Although we always say that and it always ends up being about nine yeah, months. We should mention the Patreon page is up and it has content on there now. Like yes. I, I know we promised all through season three we'd have content, but then we didn't put anything on it. <laughs> yeah, no, there are lots of bonus where we follow up facts that we don't go into enough detail on. And we, we, um, um, shout out to our first patron, uh, Stephen, as well. So thanks. Yes, I'm glad you're checking up on that. <laughs> you see, yeah, I thought we were going to get better at this in the last yeah. in the last two minutes of the last episode of season four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Stephen, I can only apologise. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, ladies and gents, we will see you again in season five.